Numbers chapter 7 and the book of Numbers, we're going to find a lot of accounting. We're going to find a lot of numbering and calculations. Um, we're going to find them in the wilderness. And that is, in the Hebrew, what this, the title of this book is, is In the Wilderness. And um, they're not supposed to be. They're only supposed to be in the wilderness for like three days. Um, they're going to spend 40 years in the wilderness. And so that we will get to in probably in our next study, and we'll see why it is that they did not go into the promised land. But to where we're, we're following um, kind of the, the establishment of, of the tabernacle and the worship that's going on. And so a lot of those movements are still happening. happening. As we move into some of these latter chapters tonight of our study, we'll see them begin to um, prepare to move. So chapter seven and eight, we're gonna um, see the elders of the tribes are gonna bring specific gifts. And then we're also gonna see um, just the, the role and the, the uh, important place that the Levites are gonna have in the nation. It's a repeated theme. But let's pick up reading there at chapter seven. And let's look at verse one. Now it came to pass when Moses had finished setting up the tabernacle that he anointed it and consecrated it and all its furnishings and the altar and all its utensils. So he anointed them and consecrated them. So you couldn't use the dishes and the bowls and the cups and the knives for stuff at home. This was, this was holy. This was only gonna be used for this one particular purpose. The bowls, the knives, the cups, you know, the altar, you couldn't go and grill your meat there, right? This was holy. It was set apart as we are set apart. We are holy. We are not for the use of the world or even our own desires. We are the Lord's and we are consecrated unto him. What a blessing. Verse two, then the leaders of Israel, the heads of their father's houses, who were leaders of the tribes and over those who were numbered, made an offering. So that's kind of where we're headed. And they brought their offering before the Lord, six covered carts and 12 oxen, a cart for every two of the leaders and for each one an ox. And they presented them before the tabernacle. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, accept these from them that they may be used in doing the work of the tabernacle of meeting. And you shall give them to the Levites to every man according to his service. So Moses took carts and the oxen and gave them to the Levites. Two carts and four oxen he gave to the sons of Gershon according to their service. And four carts and eight oxen he gave to the sons of Merari according to their service. Under the authority of Ithamar, the son of Aaron the priest. But the sons of Kohath gave none because their, theirs was the service of the holy things which they carried on their shoulders. So you have these heavy curtains, you have all of these poles, you have all of these sockets, um, and they can be loaded on the carts that were given and they can be pulled by the oxen, but not the Ark of the Covenant, not those holy things. And they were to be carried on their shoulders. Remember when we were reading and on some of the furniture of the, the tabernacle, there were um, sockets that were made and covered in gold and there were acacia poles and they were to run through those sockets and they were to lift them up and they were to carry them on their shoulders. So some of the tribes, they had these big heavy curtains 
um, and they would be loaded up. But if you're carrying one of these holy pieces, as it is called there in verse nine, then it was to be carried on the shoulders of this tribe. This is an interesting verse because it comes up later in the history of Israel, doesn't it? Does anybody know a story I'm thinking of? Yeah, there's a time when David is gonna bring the, the, the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem and they are going to be transporting it. Now, you could use the cart for some things, but you couldn't use it for the holy things. Now, if you back up even a little further in history, there was a time when um, the Philistines had captured the Ark of the Covenant when they'd gone out to battle. And they put it in their temple of uh, Dagon. They thought, okay, we've got our own God. It's the fish God. They worship him. And let's go ahead and bring the Ark of the Covenant. We'll put it in the temple as well. Let's just kind of blend it all together. And uh, as they came in the next morning, they found that the fish gods, that something was fishy, right? That the fish god had fallen down and had broken, but it was laying before the Ark of the Covenant. Um, you know, you read in um, some uh, translations that they, the, the Philistines broke out with tumors. Some believe that actually should be read hemorrhoids. And so they were like, let's get rid of this thing. And so what they did was they took a cart and they put it and got an oxen and they just set it in the direction of the Israelites. And the first village it came to was Beth Shemesh and they received it in. And um, just a little interesting archeological point on this, by the way. It's not certainty, okay? Archeological point. In the archeological digs at Beth Shemesh, they have found one room whose walls are extra thick and um, was filled with manure. They also found in there, you, you can go look it up, I think it's in, in Kings, you can also find that there was a large stone by which they set the Ark of the Covenant. So the Ark of the Covenant made it into there. And um, what they found at Beth Shemesh is one room that has extra thick uh, walls and there's a really large stone, but it was like a desecrated and was filled with manure. So if you go to Beth Shemesh, this is not like you know, Lynchburg, Virginia. It's a village. It's a small little place. So don't know for certain, but it, but it certainly fits the description of where the Ark of the Covenant so you put it in the category of that's really interesting. And um, uh, you, can, you can go online and you can read about this, this discovery. Well, fast forward back to the story with David. They're bringing the Ark of the Covenant in. 2 Samuel chapter 6, Ahio and Uzzah are driving the cart. They have put the Ark on the cart just like the Philistines did, just like they had maybe done with the curtains and something they were not to do. Well, as the Ark was going, um, as, a car, as a cart was moving along, they hit a bump, hit a rut, whatever. And um, Uzzah sought to steady the, the ark. And as he reached out and touched it, he was struck dead. And so the whole happy parade stopped right there. And they began to seek the Lord. Eventually, when they brought, went back to bring the ark in, they carried it on the shoulders of the priests. And that takes us always all the way back to this. It's interesting how you read one, one verse and it's like, well, what is the significance of that? And yet later on, it kind of, the whole story is built around that. And that's the case here. So um, the Kothites, they don't get a cart because they're supposed to carry it. Second Samuel chapter six 
shows what happened when Israel sought to disobey the Lord. And whether you would chalk this up to a detail that they overlooked or they thought, well, the, the Philistines did it that way. It worked for them. It'll work for us. Whatever their logic was, they were not following the word of the Lord. So um, that, that's kind of the, the as you know, the uh, carts and the oxen are given, they're distributed out to each one. Now, as we move into uh, verse 11, and I'm not going to read each of these, but I did contemplate reading this um, for this point, because, but it's very long, this section. But if you go from verse 11 uh, all the way down to verse 83, you find what each tribe brought. Um, so let's just read verse 11. It says, for the Lord said to Moses, they shall offer their offering, one liter each day for the dedication of the altar. And the one who offered his offering on the first day was Nashon, the son of Amminadab from the tribe of Judah. His offering was one silver platter, the weight of which was 130 shekels, one silver bowl of 70 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, both of them full of fine flour mixed with oil as a grain offering, one gold pan of 10 shekels full of incense, one young bull, one ram, one male lamb in the first year as a burnt offering, one kid of the goats as a sin offering, and for the sacrifice of the peace offering, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, and five lambs in their first year. This was the offering of Nashon, um, Nashon, the son of Amminadab. On the second day, and then as you go through, you see that this, this is a very uh, similar kind of offering that has been that's been brought. So one by one, you go through these tribes. Let's get to verse 84 with me, if you would. Verse 84 says, this was the dedication offering from the altar from the leaders of Israel when it was anointed, 12 silver platters, 12 silver bowls, and 12 gold pans. Each silver platter weighed 130 shekels, you see why it's called numbers? <laughs> um, and each bowl, 70 shekels, all the silver vessels weighed uh, 2,400 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, the 12 gold pans full of incense, weighed 10 shekels apiece, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, all the gold pans weighed 120 shekels. All the oxen for the burnt offering, 12 young bulls, the rams were 12, male, the male lambs in the first year, 12, with their grain offering, and the kids of the goats as a sin offering, 12. And all the oxen for the sacrifice of the peace offerings were 24 bulls, the rams, 60, the male goats, 60, and the lambs in their first year, 60. This was a dedication offering for the altar after it was anointed. Now, I could have read all of that, and you got your summary of what they all gave, but as I would have read through that, you would have begun like, yeah, we got it, we got it, we got it. Okay, so that guy gave, whatever his name is, gave that stuff. They all kind of did that. And, and we'll see that name, it's hard to pronounce, doesn't mean a whole lot to us in most cases. And then what they brought, it's okay, they got a gift. Do you know when that list would become really significant to you? If your name was in it. If your name was in that list, you would be really, look, let's read, I'm gonna read. And you know, you, you know how it is. If a picture's taken, it's a big family reunion picture, you're gonna look for yourself to see what does my face look like? How does my hair look? Do, you, know, what do I, you know, we look. And if there was a list, 
And there was this long list of these 12, and what they brought, you would go, there it is, and you would read. So I think to these guys, it probably was like, hey, there it is, yeah, that's it, that was my, that's my dad, that's my grandpa, that's my great-grandfather, he brought that, he brought this stuff. So what did they bring? Well, <laughs> they brought $14,400 of silver gifts and $57,600 worth of gold gifts. Then you had all those animals, which I did not bother to calculate, so if somebody's ambitious, for extra credit, you go calculate that based on the livestock of the day, and then we'll, I'll be glad to share that with somebody else. I don't know, maybe we got a farmer in here who could do that for us. But um, I, I, wasn't, I just did not feel inspired to go look up the cost of all of these different animals out on the market. But it was, this alone tells you how much was given. So, um, if you're interested, yeah, six dollars um, is the, the rate that was used was six dollars um, for the silver, and um, a rate of four hundred eighty dollars for the gold. So that's kind of how that was figured out. Um, so the numbers seem tedious, but they do speak to us of how the Lord records what His people do. Now that, that all of a sudden begins to sound like something we can apply to our lives, doesn't it? The Lord pays attention to what we do and how we give and the th- kinds of things we put our hands to. In Philippians chapter 4, verses 14 through 20, Paul's saying thank you to those believers for their, financi- for their financial support. So I want to read this to you. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your, what's the word? Your account. Indeed, I have all. And abound, I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to me? No, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So the Lord is keeping an account uh, there in numbers of what each of these tribes and the heads of the tribes brought. To us, we read it, it seems a little tedious, and we move on to the summary and we keep on. But you know, the Lord is aware. We studied this past week in Hebrews that the Lord is not unjust to forget our, our sacrifice, our works that we do. Um, we went over to 1 Corinthians 15, 58, that we remain steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor is not in vain in the Lord, right? So the Lord knows what we're doing for him. And you can think of it in one of two ways. I, I think one is wrong. I don't think the Lord is like, I'm going to watch you. I am going to watch you. And I'm going to write everything down about you. Pay attention. I don't think that's the heart of the Lord. I think the heart of the Lord is, you're my servant, and I've given things for you to do, and I will not miss one detail of your labor and your love 
and your sacrifice that you do in my name, I love it. It's, it's, the Lord has this book of remembrance of everything you have done for his glory and for his honor and his name. If you give a penny, he knows. A penny, come on, really a penny? Really a penny. Does anybody know a story I'm thinking of? Yeah, the widow and her two mites. I mean, you, you just, it's nothing. You couldn't do anything with it. And yet the Lord says, look, look at that. I'm recording what she gave. She gave more than anybody else because they give out of their abundance, but she gave all that she had. They maybe give, you know, $50,000, you know, in, in gold, but, they, but they're a millionaire. She had two mites and she gave it all. She gave more than everybody else. The Lord is looking at this. And you're like, oh boy, he's talking about money. The church must be, the church is fine. The church is fine. All the bills are paid. The Lord is blessing, praise the Lord. This is not about the church's bills. This is about your account in heaven. This is about my account and Rebecca's account in heaven and what we do with our time and our resources. Oh, God doesn't care about money. Yeah, he does. He does because it's connected to us and it reflects our heart. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I remember hearing this, uh, hearing this when I was in high school. A pastor say, you know, you could have zero interest in the stock market, but give, put $50 in the stock market and suddenly you'll be interested in it. And you'll want to say, just 50 bucks. And suddenly you're going to say, how's my stock? How's my, you know, one quarter of a stock going today? You know, my portion of a stock, how's it going? And you're going to look, and you're going to pay attention because now you have an investment. When you invest in the kingdom of God financially, when you invest in the kingdom of God emotionally, when you invest in the kingdom of God um, creatively, when you invest in the kingdom of God um, in your brother or sister to disciple them, you care. Because where your treasure is, there your heart is going to be also. And, and I think it's our heart that really leads us to invest some of this treasure. You know, you, you've, uh, if you listen to my prayer on Sunday morning about praying for the offering, it doesn't change. You're like, yeah, this guy needs to get a new prayer. No, it, it's, it's a prayer that I want to pray. It's not vain repetition. It's, it's one there. It's like, Lord, thank you that as, as we give to you that we are investing. And we're saying that your gospel kingdom is worthy of our investment. And so as I give, I'm giving unto the Lord. Don't give unto me. Don't give unto Calvary Chapel Lynchburg. Give unto the Lord. And here's the amazing thing. He's got a book in heaven. And you have an account. And he's recording what you're giving. Not just what you're giving. But as you can see there in Philippians. And, and Paul says, man, this is a sweet smelling aroma. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that the God of the universe takes the time to record that gift. You give $100, and he's like, oh, that is so pleasing to me. They love my work. They value my kingdom. They've said no to things here on earth, and they've valued my kingdom, and they've put their, oh, that is such a pleasing aroma to me. You know, I, I tell you, um, just 
people like, I'm so glad you guys some pass the offering plate here at Calvary Chapel Lynchburg. Well, okay. You can, you can, you can love that, but the, you, here's the story behind it. It's not because we think it's bad. It, pass it, it's not we think there's something wrong with passing the offering plate because it's worship. You either participate or you don't. Um, we, the reason we didn't is when we first started, um, sometimes we would pass the offering plate and it's like, there were so few of us, it's like, hmm? Okay, you know, it's like there's hardly any of us. It just it felt really awkward. I'm like, let's just put some boxes on the back wall. I didn't I didn't know of anybody else who did that. It's just like, let's put some boxes on the back wall, and so that we began to do that. And I'm actually remember the um, as we began to do that. I told the elders, I said, you know what, we're just gonna we're gonna put it on the back wall, and I just want you guys to know that. And um, one of the brothers said, he goes, all right. He goes, well, can we pass the boxes? I said, if you can move the wall, you can pass the boxes for sure. <laughs> And um, so there was concern. It's like, well, are people going to forget? Are they not going to do it? And, and, and that's why. I don't think there's anything wrong with passing the plate. As a matter of fact, I think there are times that maybe we miss a little element of the worship in it. Because it's too easy just to walk by, plunk it in there, and not do it. Because in the early days, what we were doing, we were in the midst of a worship song, it was being collected. So I'm worshiping the Lord with my voice and my heart and my mind, and now I'm worshiping as I give. So I'm not saying I'm changing it. I'm just saying um, it, it, it should be worship, and I just in, encourage you to pause a moment. Now, and now, of course, a lot of it's online giving, right? And then for some of us, we have the memorized online giving, and so it just, we just feel distant from it. And so I just want to encourage you, those of you that are giving, just ponder it. Just ponder your gift to the Lord. Let it be worship to him. Give him praise. Let it, 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 he's taking the time to record it and it's a sweet smelling aroma, pleasing to God. Are you kidding me? My check to the Lord is catching his attention? That's pretty amazing. What a blessing that he would do that. And then my time and my investment, my creativity, all these other things. There's an account that's associated with it. So, yeah, the book of Numbers. I think this is a great example of um, what the book is like in many chapters, but there's an application for us, even in Numbers. Well, let's move on down into verse 89. Now, when Moses went into the tabernacle of meeting to speak with him, he heard the voice of one speaking to him from above the mercy seat, that was on the Ark of the Testimony from between two cherubim, thus he spoke to him. So you put it that next slide. So when we think of a mercy seat, I know that some people are thinking of a chair by which mercy is issued forth. Um, and it can be a great picture. Well, I'm, I'm about to, to ruin that image for you right now because it's not accurate, completely accurate. It's partially accurate. The mercy part's accurate. The seat part is, I think you, you, you'll understand it better if you think of the seat as a lid. So you have here a picture of the Ark of the Covenant. I took it myself, no. Um, so I found it and it is hidden in a place that I'll be glad to disclose. But so it's the Ark of the Covenant and, and you have this rectangular box and then there's a lid on it and then on top of it, I don't know if you can really make it out too well, but you have these angels with their wings stretched forth over the top of it. 
And so you get this beautiful picture of worship. And so that's the lid. If you were to take that off at a time in history, you would find the Ten Commandments. Does anybody else know what you find in the Ark of the Covenant? A jar of manna and the, an Aaron's rod that budded. And then the lid was put on top of it. And of course, the Ten Commandments, let's just talk about that for a second. The Ten Commandments are there. It's covered with the lid. We break those Ten Commandments. The blood is sprinkled on the Day of Atonement once a year on top of that lid, covering the broken commandments. There's, a, there's an interesting picture that, that's here. But that's the mercy seat. It's a covering. It's the same word if you follow it through the different languages as propitiation. Jesus is our propitiation, isn't he? He is our covering. He is the one, not only is he uh, the mercy seat, he is also the priest that comes in, he is also the sacrifice, he is also the blood that's on there. I mean, he's, he's everything, right? And so Jesus is there. But he comes and, and he's having a conversation with him um, and the Lord speaks to him from between the two cherubim. What a moment, what an awesome scene this must have been. Of course, Moses was a man that was, and we'll see this, was so honored by the Lord even and thought so highly of him. He's gonna come to his defense. Um, and we'll, If we have enough time, we'll, we'll see that defense the Lord makes of Moses. And as you hear that and the Lord speaks to him, I imagine a lot of us think that would have been awesome, and it would have been. But I want to remind you, Luke 9.35, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son. What? Hear him. And then as we go into the Gospel of John, we think about Jesus as a good shepherd, chapter 10. He says, my sheep know my voice. The father says, hear him. Jesus says, my sheep know my voice. Well, do we have to go to the mercy seat? If you come to Jesus, you have come to the mercy seat. Isn't that an interesting picture? That God spoke from the mercy seat, and yet Jesus is our propitiation. He is that covering, and he is the one we come to to hear the Lord speak to us today. My problem, and I imagine it's your problem too, is that I get too busy and I run, 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 and then I'm done. And I'm tired and I fall asleep. And then you gotta get up going, going the next morning. Does anybody, is that, okay, two of us have that problem. We need to slow down. We need to read our Bible and stop. Read your Bible and stop. I'll even say, you know, for some of you that are just like, you're just digging in, you're digging in, you're digging in. Wonderful. Keep doing that. But I just want to ask you this question. In your digging in, are you hearing the voice of the Lord? Because it can become about the method of study rather than hearing God speak to us from our propitiation, from his son. So take the time. Sometimes you just need to read and you just need to sit. Just say, Lord, what do you want to say to me? What do you want to say to me? You know, something that I've found to be very helpful, has anybody ever discovered when you go to pray and you go to have a quiet time that you will have a hundred things zip into your mind that you need to do? Raise your hand if that's you. Okay. Here, and it, I don't think it's simply my mind thinking. There's an element of I got quiet and now my mind can think about and give 
you know, it can put some things out there. I think that's part of it. But I am convinced it is also the enemy that is just trying to distract us. Do this. Don't ignore those things. Just get a piece of paper and a pen. If you're taking notes and you're studying, great. But then just have another sheet of paper. And you can just have, say, to-do list. (laughs) And every time it pops in your head, just write it down and ignore it for that time. You know what's going to happen? I have found that the Lord has helped me to order my day so well. So, you know, I guess it's interesting. Is that just my mind? Is it the enemy? Or is it the Lord saying, you're taking time to honor me? I'm I'm going to help you in your time. I'm going to show you the things you need to take care of, all the things that you forgot. As you seek me, I'm get, and just write them down and let me know how it works out for you. Because I, you know, what we say, oh, I got to get up and go do it. No, you don't. The Lord is just saying, these are the things you got to take care of. And, and, and watch how the Lord will work through that. But we need to hear the voice of the Lord. And the father said, this is my beloved son, hear him. You move into chapter eight and we have the ordination of the Levites. I want to, Look down at verse 14, if you will, with me. It says, thus you shall separate the Levites from among the children of Israel, and the Levites shall be mine. Circle mine, write me. Put your name there. We're the priesthood of the New Testament. After that, the Levites shall go in to uh, go into the service of the tabernacle of meeting, so you shall cleanse them and offer them like a wave offering, for they are wholly given to me. From among the children of Israel, I have taken them for myself instead of all that opened the womb, the firstborn of all the children. So if you remember back in the book of Exodus, whenever there was a firstborn, they had to redeem that firstborn with money. But God says, I'll tell you what, I'll make you a deal. You don't have to redeem them with money. The entire tribe of Levites are mine. So rather than paying money for the firstborn, the Levites were the redemption of that firstborn. So that's what's being referred to. Verse 17, for the all the firstborn among the children of Israel are mine, both man and beast. On the day uh, that I struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I sanctified them to myself. I have taken the Levites instead of all the firstborn of the children of Israel. So, um, I mean, if you're the tribe of Judah, you could say, thank you, Mr. Levite. Um, because of you, I don't have to pay for the redemption of the firstborn. The Lord took you instead. And so, you would, you would hope that that would be something, an honor for the Levites and an appreciation for the, from among the other tribes. But the Lord says, they're all mine. They are wholly given to me. A good description of what our life should be like. Titus 2.14, uh, speaking of Jesus, says, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself, his own special people zealous for good works. This kind of sounds like the Levites, doesn't it? But under the new covenant, we are those people. We are that called out, set apart, special people. We are not our own. We've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify the Lord in your body. So we should be those that are serving as the Levites. In the chapter 9, down to chapter 10, verse 10, we're going to see the Passover being remembered, and we're going to see the wonderful presence of the Lord. So in verses 1 through 14, there's a, there's a, a call to remember, as to, to think back on the Exodus. So verse 1, we'll read a few verses here, down to verse 4. Now the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the first month of the second year, after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying... 
let the children of Israel keep the Passover at its appointed time. On the 14th day of this month at twilight, you shall keep it at its appointed time. According to all the rites and ceremonies, you shall keep it. And he's laid it all out for them. So this is just kind of like a pop-up notice on their calendar. You, it's time to do this. So Moses told the children of Israel that they should keep the Passover. The feast looked back to the salvation that God provided them when they were in the land of Egypt. And death spread throughout the land. And in the, the firstborn, um, death happened among uh, men and among beasts. And if you were firstborn, you died. Unless a lamb had been sacrificed and the blood of that lamb had put on the, been put on the doorpost and lintel of that household, then there was no death. Death passed over. And what do we read of Jesus when he came on the scene? John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus coming to him, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So John prophesies about the ministry of Jesus. He's going to be sacrificed and his blood is going to save us. He's going to redeem us. So this is what they're, they're remembering. So the Passover celebration looked back into Exodus when they were spared and they were set free from bondage in Israel. But the Passover was also foreshadowing what Jesus would do when he died on the cross for our sins. It is in that Passover meal that we just read and celebrated in our communion uh, worship and remembrance that he said that as often as we get together, we should remember. But it's, that's attached to the Passover meal. So Passover looks back. Um, now for us, it all looks back, right? We're looking back to the sacrifice of Jesus, but then we go on back into Exodus where it all began and was foreshadowing what he would do for us. But he says, it's a, it's a time to remember. Remember what I did for you. And so we remember this redemption each and every time we share in the communion meal and eating the bread, which speaks of his body broken for us, bruised and beaten, and the fruit of the vine that we drink of and how it represents his blood shed for us. So it's time for them to remember. Now as we move on in verse 15, we come to the next uh, section of chapter 9. And we read, now on the, on the day that the tabernacle was raised up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony, from evening until morning, it was above the tabernacle, like the appearance of fire. So it was always, the cloud covered it by day, and the appearance of fire by night. Whenever the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle, after that the children of Israel would journey. And in the place where the clouds settled, there the children of Israel would pitch their tents. Verse 18, at the command of the Lord, the children of Israel would journey. And at the command of the Lord, they would camp. As long as the cloud stayed above the tabernacle, they remained in camp. The cloud and the fire are representative of the Lord's presence in their midst. Which is interesting to think about every time they sinned and rebelled, an eye shot was the presence of the Lord. We're going to see some of their sin. In the midst of their sin, they were looking at the cloud or they were looking at the fire, depending on the time of day. But they were, here's the waiting on the Lord. We're not going to move until the Lord moves. Can we go? I'm tired of this place. We can't go. 
Why can't we go? Because the presence of the Lord is still here. Well, when are we going to go? We don't know. Well, how long are we going to stay here? We don't know. Are we going to be here forever? Probably not forever, but for as long as the Lord would have us. If it's a day, a week, a month, two months, three months, we're going to stay here. We're not going to move until the Lord moves. We don't want to get out ahead of him, and we don't want to lag behind him. So this symbol of the presence and the guiding presence of, uh, for his people, I, it's a powerful example for us of how we need to hear and wait upon the Lord. And of course, we have his word that instructs us and tells us how to function and how to conduct ourselves. But we also have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that is speaking to us, read through the book of Acts again. And as, as the Apostle Paul, they're on missionary travels, and they're, let's go into Bithynia, let's go into Asia, let's go preach the gospel. What could possibly be wrong with that? And the Holy Spirit, we read, forbids them from going there, but instead reroutes them, and they go into Europe, they go into Philippi. And this is where they begin, the gospel begins to reach out into the West. So, the Lord has a specific plan. And we want to be in step with that plan. We want to hear the voice of the Lord. Read Acts chapter 13. Where the church gets together and they're praying and they're worshiping and they're waiting upon the Lord. They're fasting. And the Lord says, separate unto me Paul and Barnabas for the work into which I've called them. And missionary work begins. The Spirit's leading and guiding. And so the voice of the Lord we need to be learning. So it's easy to run ahead because we get impatient. It's easy to lag behind because we are fearful of what the journey may look like. But what is the Spirit of God saying to you? And then step out. Are you gonna know in the same way in which you can, they, they did, are you, I mean, in some ways it would be wonderful, wouldn't it? It's like the cloud's moving, I'm gonna go get a new job. Okay, the cloud is staying, I'm gonna stay in the same, you know, it would be nice if we had that. But you know, the Lord has told us that we're gonna just follow his leading and his voice. We don't walk by, by sight, we walk by faith. And so you're gonna to have to tune your ear to the voice of the Lord. And there's going to be those moments where you are trying to discern, is this the voice of the Lord? Is the Lord saying stay? Is he saying move? I'm sure you've never had that question in your mind before. What is the Lord saying about this? What does he want? Lord, I, I could do this or I could do that. I wanna do the right thing, what is it? There's going to come a moment in your walk, many of them, by the way, in your walk, in your journey of faith, where you're going to have to take a step of faith and you're going to say, you know what? I don't know for a fact that this is what we're supposed to do. But I think, I believe, I have faith that the Lord is leading me in that direction. It does not contradict his word. I've prayed about it. I have a peace about it. And I'm going to step out. I'm going to step out and see what the Lord does. And you step out, and then the Lord meets you, and you see the doors open, you see things come together, and you're like, ah, oh, that, was, that was the Lord. Then there's gonna be these other times where you step out, and you're like, that was a really bad idea. I wish I wouldn't have done that. I, there's clearly not the Lord. What am I gonna do now? You know what you're gonna do? You're just gonna say, Lord, I made a mistake. And if you can, if he's leading you to back, you know, back the bus up, then back the bus up. But if the bus is already in another town and you got a new job and a new house, then you know what? You just say, Lord, I made a mistake. I'm so sorry. I didn't hear you. 
but now I know what your voice doesn't sound like, so that'll be helpful in the future. (laughs) I know it doesn't sound like that, so Lord, please forgive me. Pour your grace out, and he will. He's your heavenly father. If you make a decision thinking you're doing the right thing for his glory and honor, and it turns out to not be the right thing, I don't think he's gonna take you in the woodshed. I think he's gonna say, no, that wasn't what I wanted. Let's do it this way next time. And the Lord will speak to us. So we need to learn to wait upon the Lord. In verse 10, uh, chapter 10, verses one through 10, you have uh, the use of trumpets. In verse two, trumpets are used to uh, tell the camp to move, to direct, and to move the camp. In verse nine, to call the nation to war. And chapter 10, verse 10, and calling the people to worship at the different festivals. So the use of the trumpets. Now, as you come into verse 11, this becomes a new section of um, numbers. If you have your, your handout, we handed them out last week, or the week before, I guess it would have been. It looks something like this. And um, if you didn't get one, you can go online and just go under the, uh, the section called Through the Bible Under Sermons, and it's a PDF. It's out there. You can look it up. But, it, but if you look at that, you can see the, the, you know, that, that new section that we're heading into, so chapter 10, verse actually should be 11, um, is gonna take us all the way um, into um, chapter 22, verse one. And this is gonna record the journey from Mount Sinai. So they're leaving Mount Sinai and they're gonna come all the way to the plains of Moab and it's gonna cover almost a period of 40 years, okay? So we have kind of a, a, a new section in the book of Numbers. Um, and so uh, Israel departs in their new marching order. There is an order by which they were to, to march. So uh, chapter 10, verse 11 is where that picks up. It says, now it came to pass on the 20th day of the second month in the second year that the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle of testimony and the children of Israel set out from the wilderness of Sinai, Sinai on their journeys, and the clouds settled down in the wilderness of Paran. So that's where they stopped. So they started out for the first time according to the command of the Lord by the hand of Moses. The standard of the camp of the children of Judah set out first according to the armies. Over their army was uh, Nashon, uh, Nashon, the son of Amminadab. We already met him. Um, and so that was the way it began. Um, and Judah was first. And as you read through this section, you come to the last tribe. The last tribe to move was Naphtali. And this is how they're going to journey. Now, verse 29 of the same chapter, so chapter 10, verse 29, we read, Now Moses said to Hobab, the son of Raul, the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law, We are setting out for the place of which the Lord said, I will give it to you. Come with us and we will treat you well. For the Lord has promised good things to Israel. And he said to him, I will not go, but I will depart to my own land and to my own relatives. So Moses said, please don't leave. Inasmuch as you know how we are to camp in the wilderness and you can be our eyes. And it shall be, if you go with us, indeed it shall be that whatever good the Lord will do to us the same we will do to you. So they departed from the mountain of the Lord on a journey of three days, and the ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them 
for the three days journey to search out a resting place for them. And the cloud of the Lord was above them by day when they went out from the camp. So it was whenever the ark set out that Moses said, rise up, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered and let those who hate you flee. And when it rested, he said, return, O Lord, to many thousands of Israel. So the question I want to put in front of you, and I don't think you can be definitive, was this a lapse of faith or a practical move to ask Hobab, um, Ruul, his father-in-law, to, to come? No, well, I mean, they got, the, they got the Shekinah, the glory of God, rising and, and moving or staying, which is a pretty good indication of where they should go. Could, could the presence of the Lord not have told them, this is where you camp? So the question is, was this a practical move? Well, we're gonna, we're gonna wait for the Lord and when it moves, that's fine. But where we actually camp and the details of how to set up, but it'd be good to know, have somebody who knew the land here. And, and so he, um, it would seem, persuades him to travel with him. Um, or is this like, I just, I need you. I gotta have somebody here. I gotta have somebody that can help me understand these things. If it was a lack of faith, and to be you know, careful here, the Bible does not condemn Moses and it does not call it sin for what he did. So, you know, there's, there's a divide. I think most that you read are gonna say this was a mistake on his part. So let's just go with that. Let's just, let's just think, but we'll be careful because we don't wanna have to apologize to Moses when we get to heaven for doing this, right? He said, why did you preach that that was wrong? The Lord gave me permission. Didn't you read it? He said nothing bad to me. Okay, okay, sorry, Moses. Um, But it is here because we all know how easy it is to get fearful and how we want to have something that's like a safety net when the Lord says move. So is this a safety net or is this you know, a practical move. Well, if it is a safety net that was unnecessary, I think of Psalm 20, verse one. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob defend you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and strengthen you out of Zion. May he remember all your offerings and accept your burnt sacrifice, Selah. May he grant you according to your heart's desire and fulfill your purpose. We will rejoice in your salvation, and in the name of our God, we will set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Verse six, now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, some in family members maybe. But we will remember the name of the Lord our God. They have bowed down and fallen, but we have risen and stand upright. Save, Lord, may the king answer us when we call. So if this was a lack of faith or a lapse of faith, or just maybe it's just like he wanted him to be a part. <laughs> you know, maybe he just be a part of what God's doing. Don't leave it. So I mean, you know, I think you can make an argument either way. But uh, we certainly can make the error where we don't think the Lord's gonna come through and begin to trust in chariots. We begin to trust in other people. Jesus is your only hope. You do know that, right? Jesus is it. You know what I'm good for? This is what I'm good for. 
go follow him. I'm good to point you to Jesus. And that's all the good any of us can do. Our highest achievement in life towards one another is when you come to us for counseling or help, or you call your friend up and they say, have you prayed yet? Let's pray to Jesus. You need to go cling to him. You need to go wait on him all day. That is the best we can do. We are not Messiah. We just can point you to Messiah. There is that tendency for us to want to cling on to man and cling to him to, or her to help us and to get us through. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. There are good, godly men and women all around you. I'm not saying that, but you know what? They're just flesh. They're just flesh. And they could have a bad day tomorrow and they could not answer their phone. Or they could go and be with the Lord next week and they won't be there for you. They're just flesh. But your king, he'll answer you every time you call. Trust in him. And I do believe that sometimes when we get too fixated on a relationship, the Lord will have it that he begins to pry our fingers off of that person because he wants us to cling to him and to trust in him. Chapter 11 and 12, um, a couple of challenges come to Moses. Moses is gonna be challenged in ministry by the attitude of the people. And then in chapter 12, he's going to be challenged, um, his authority is gonna be challenged by his family. So let's see if we can make it through um, this. But chapter 11, verse one, it says, now when the people complained, it displeased the Lord, for the Lord heard it and his anger was aroused. The fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some in the outskirts of the camp. So people are dying. And the, the fire of the Lord is there to lead them and guide them, but now it's doing something different. Then the people cried out to Moses, and when Moses prayed to the Lord, the fire was quenched. So he called the name of the place Tabera because the fire of the Lord had burned among them. Now the mixed multitude, so some of the Egyptians who were among them, yielded to intense cravings. So the children of Israel also wept again and said, who will give us meat to eat? So as you read that phrase right there, think of the worst whining voice you've ever heard in your life and, and, and read it like that. Now imagine that it's two million people doing that to you. You thought it was bad with your three kids. Imagine this. We remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt and the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and onions. Oh, don't, say, don't even mention the onions. And the garlic. But now our whole being is dried up. And there's nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. Now the manna was like coriander seed and its color like the color of uh, delium. The people went and gathered it, ground it on millstone or beat it into mortar, cooked it in pans and made cakes of it. And its taste was like the taste of pastry prepared with oil. And when the dew fell on the camp in the night, the manna fell on it. Then Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families, everyone at the door of his tent, everyone, two million people, all complaining about the, you know, what's for dinner. And the anger of the Lord was greatly aroused. Moses also was displeased. So Moses said to the Lord, I'm gonna whine too. Why have you afflicted your servant? And why? Have I found favor in your sight that you have laid the burden of all these people on me? 
Did I conceive all these people? These are my kids. Did I beget them? You should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a a guardian carries a nursing child to the land which you swore to your fathers. Where am I to get meat to give to all these people? For they weep all over me. (laughs) Get off me. I know you moms have never said that to your kids, but you thought it. Get off of me. Give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to bear all these people alone because the burden is too heavy for me. If you treat me like this, please kill me. And here, right here and now, if I found favor in your sight, do not let me see my wretchedness anymore. That's, that's how we did. Don't, don't let me see tomorrow morning. Because tomorrow morning, if I wake, I'm alive, and that's a wretched thing because these people are killing me. So, he, he's challenged by the attitude of these people. He begins to have a problem too. 1 Corinthians 10.10 says, nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. The Lord does not like his children to whine. He doesn't like it because he's a good father and he takes care. You may not like the provision that you have of manna, but it is angel's food, by the way, isn't it? You may not like the provision of the Lord in your life, but it is a provision of the Lord. And if you were to get what you wanted, are you certain of the outcome on your life? Just set me free from this, Lord. Just give me this, just give me that. Give me him, give me her. That's all I need is a job that pays this much more. I just need this much freedom. And what if, I mean, what if, I'm not saying it is, but what if that, ends up being the snare that gets you. Do you want it still? Well, not if it's a snare, but it's just 10,000 more. Why would that be a snare? I don't know, but he may know. And so we want to be careful when we begin, well, we shouldn't complain. But if you're asking for some different provision, you should say, but Lord, I don't really know much of anything. So give me what you think is best and I'll be content with it. Elijah also felt like Moses, 1 Kings 19.4. He says, but he himself went a day's journey in the wilderness and came and sat down under, the broom, under a broom tree and he prayed that he might die. Yeah, you serve the Lord and it's, it can be a battle and it can be warfare and there'll be days of discouragement. <laughs> Elijah says, it's enough. Now, Lord, take my life. I'm no better than my father. The Lord's not going to kill him. The Lord's not going to kill you. He's not going to take you. He's got other plans for your life. So um, the answer is in verse 16 and 17. The Lord says, get 70 people to help you. My spirit that's upon you, I'm going to put it upon them as well. Verses 18 through 30. The Lord sends a supply of quail for a month. But look at verse 20 of chapter 11. But for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you because you've despised the Lord who is among you and have wept before him saying, why did we ever come out of Egypt? The Lord says, you want quail? I'll give you quail. And it's going to come out your nose. You're going to be puking this stuff. You think you want that? You're going to hate this. Now, I don't know all of the ins and outs of why that was the case, but the Lord 
You know, sometimes the worst thing is we can whine before the Lord and the Lord will give us what we're whining for. That's why I say, Lord, I, I think I know, but I probably don't really know. So I want whatever you want. Now, listen, Moses says in verse 23, look at verse 23, and the Lord said to Moses, has a, or, or actually, um, verse 21, Moses says, there's 600 fighting men. What do you mean you're gonna give us quail for a month? That can't happen. Shall we kill everything, verse 22? Shall we empty the sea of all the, the fish there? Is that gonna be enough? I mean, Moses is... He's caught, he's caught there whining, hasn't he? Verse 23, and the Lord said to Moses, has the Lord's arm been shortened? What happened to me? Moses, what happened to me that I'm not able to, to do the things I used to do? Now you shall see whether what I say will happen to you or not. And of course, they end up coming and all these quail come into the camp for a month and they catch them and they store them up. They end up beating them down. And so many at this point in time have said, this could not happen. You can read believers say, this is, this is an exaggeration. This cannot happen. There's no way there could be this much quail that could come. Well, they come in off, they come off the, the sea and they're fighting these winds and they come to a certain place and then when they, they can go no further, they just collapse. So I found this interesting. The historian Pliny writes, and got this quote. I'm quoting um, from... Gene Stratton Porter out of the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, and he's referencing a writing he's read of Pliny. Pliny writes of their coming, that'd be the quail, of their coming into Italy in such numbers and so exhausted with their long flight that if they sighted a sailing vessel, they settled upon it by hundreds and in such numbers as to sink it taking into consideration the diminutive vessels of that age and the myriads of birds, this does not appear to be incredible. So there's historical accounts, references, to quail being in such large numbers that they actually sink ships. So this is something, that, now the miracle is this, it's the timing. The Lord let those poor little birds get all with, I don't know if he increased the, the headwind for these birds by like, they need 10 degrees, you know, headwind. So when they get right over the camp, they're gonna have to fall. If we don't give them 10 degrees, you know, uh, more headwind, they're gonna have strength and they're gonna fly right on by. So let's allow the wind to get a little stronger. And so when they got right over the camp, those little birds were wore out and they just began to come down. The Lord did it. He provided for them, but it was not really a blessing, was it? Ended up being something that was so miserable. We're gonna close here. Um, if you, you read through verses 31 to 35, the quail did not satisfy, and that is the case with every one of our cravings. Our flesh, when we have a craving for flesh, quail, right? We begin to desire fleshly things, and we get them, it's not going to satisfy. Only the Lord can satisfy us. We close. We'll come to chapter 12 next week. Psalm 106. Let me read two verses 6 through 18. We'll close with prayer. We have sinned with our fathers. We have committed iniquity. So the psalmist is writing of, it, of the seasons of, of Israel's history. We've committed iniquity. We have done wickedly. Our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. They did not remember the multitude of your mercies, but rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. Nevertheless, he saved them for his namesake, that he might make his mighty power known. He rebuked the Red Sea also, and it dried up. So he led them 
to the depths. This is why I don't think it's a shallow little lake. No little, re- no little swamp has ever been known for its depths, right? As through the wilderness, like mountains on either side, and you're down in the valley. Verse 10, he saved them from the hand of him who hated them and redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. The waters covered their enemies. There was not one of them left. Then they believed his words. They sang his praise. They soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel, but lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tested God in the desert. And he gave them their request, but sent leanness to their soul. When they envied Moses in the camp, that's chapter 12 and other chapters as well, and Aaron, the saint of the Lord, the earth opened up and swallowed Dathan and covered the faction of Abiram. A fire was kindled in the company. The flame, you might want to just read through this. He just goes through their history. It's like they believe the Lord, they sing a song, and then they forget. And you're like, how could they do that? I don't know. How in the world could they do it? Aren't you glad we don't do that? It's only that generation that forgot the works of the Lord. The Lord is good to you. His provision is just right. Worship team, I'm not going to ask you to come up. I just want us to just stop for a moment here. Help me finish this line. The Lord is my shepherd. What? I shall not want because the Lord is my shepherd. And he is taking me into the green pastures. He's taking me to the still waters. He will prepare a table in the presence of my enemy. I don't have to want for anything other than what I have because I've got a good shepherd. Now, if you're not saved, then you need to come to Jesus and he'll take care of you. You have everything you need right now. Now, it might, it might, try, it might change by the time you wake up and the thing that you need so, think you need so desperately, you might get it tomorrow. Might be, tomorrow might be the right time. But be careful that you don't force the hand of the Lord to get something. The Lord is your shepherd. Don't want for anything. Trust him. And just just say, Lord, you are a good father. You take care of me. I'm not going to complain about dinner anymore. (laughs) I'm not going to whine about it. I'm just going to enjoy what you give me because it's from your hand. Father, we thank you that you do look out for our every need. And you withhold no good thing from those that walk uprightly. Or as James says, every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of light to whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Lord, you give, us, you give us everything. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places are ours. So Lord, help us tonight to see the manna, to see the angel's food, to see that you are taking care of us. And Lord, if it looks a little lean in the cupboards, may we be glad that at least it's lean. And you know, you know what we need. You know what we don't need. And so we just want to trust you. We want to worship you. We want to lift our voices and our hands in thanksgiving for all that you've done for us. We thank you, Lord. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.